Hello, everyone, and welcome back to this episode five of History Hermanos. Um, today, we're going to be looking at uh, The Taste of War um, by Lizzie Collingham. But before we get into it, uh, just a brief um, intro about ourselves in case you're new to the show. So, my name is Tom, and my opposite number is Simon, and we're two brothers who are very much passionate about history, and we want to use this podcast as a vehicle for. Uh, reading more history, um, learning more about the subjects, and um, discussing our findings, and hopefully you enjoy some of the stuff we have to say as well. Um, so as I said, today we're going to be talking about uh, a book called The Taste of War, World War II and the Battle of Food by Lizzie Collingham. Uh, uh, Lizzie Collingham is a historian, and her primary interest, it would seem by her sort of publication history, is around sort of food history, and sort of in particular sort of around sort of um, the British Empire as well and um, I kind of heard about this book through I think a YouTuber um, don't hold that against me um, it's quite an interesting topic because obviously I think for a lot of people um, especially interest say myself interested in the sort of European theatre people are probably aware that there was this general sort of um, uh, stress within the sort of German high command on old German sort of um, political sort of uh, body um, around sort of acquiring resources and one of those key resources of food. Um, but it's quite interesting. And this is sort of the book sort of deals quite heavily with is, is how that played a role in all of the main combatants um, in World War II and sort of how that unfolded in sort of very different, different aspects. Um, so the, the way that I wanted to structure this um, podcast today um, was kind of, as, as I sort of spoke separately with Simon, is how I might have structured the book myself. So um, what we both found, and we'll probably come to in a little bit, that uh, how the book was structured, it kind of went in sequence to the main combatants, the main combatants being, well, at least in, in the author's um, point of view, uh, Germany, the British Empire, uh, the USA, Soviet Union, uh, China, and Japan. Um, of course, she does sort of consider all of the sort of, um, say, occupied or sort of allied forces within those sort of uh, buckets as well. Um, but what, what we kind of found is by ordering it by combatant uh, rather than by sort of a key theme, um, it does lead to a lot of repetition. So in this case, um, or for the, our purposes, we're going to sort of focus on some of the key themes and just talk combatant by combatant within each of those themes. Uh, and this is kind of lends itself a bit more easily to discussion. But uh, yeah, that, that's just well, my opinion. I think Simon says, shares my opinion as well. <laughs> um, I'm going to say this. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. So, 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 so I'm not, 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 not sort of putting me under any duress. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's enough. So as, as, as with previous episodes, we're going to sort of go through the book material more or less and sort of wrap up with some sort of concluding thoughts and sort of whether or not we would recommend this. So I think the, yeah, I, th I think that's everything I want to talk about now. So the first thing um, we're going to talk about is what I've called sort of considered sort of strategic considerations. And this is kind of maybe a bit being a bit sort of, um, underhand here are sort of strategic in terms of like the grand strategy is like what the big sort of big picture 
items are, as well as maybe the more sort of immediate sort of practical considerations. Um, so, so let's start with, with Germany. And so I, again, as I was saying, I, I think most people are kind of um, aware that there was big sort of idea about expansion and especially expansion into Eastern Europe, uh, seen as some sort of breadbasket for like this greater German Reich. Um, and obviously this, this is the term that's frequently sort of associated with Hitler, which is Lebensraum, like living space. And th this kind of has uh, multiple different, um, I suppose what you would call it, like theoretical or sort of um, precursors to, to this sort of evolving idea. And some of these things we sort of picked up on a little bit with uh, Alexander Watson's book, this idea of middle Europa, this need for like um, uh, self-sufficiency um, to sort of uh, evade any sort of risk of sort of uh, economic blockade as was evident in World War I. Uh, and not only did that sort of evolve out of the practical considerations of the First World War, um, but obviously, well, this evidently sort of led to the political thinkers in World War II trying to have a de determination to sort of uh, mitigate any of that risk in the, the Second World War as well. Um, but it also seems, and, and I think that this was new to me at least, um, that there seems to be sort of two novel elements to it. So firstly, it's that uh, it wasn't just say um, Hitler unilaterally sort of deciding that, oh yes, you know, expansion is, is the way forward. It seems to be that uh, this was maybe an evolving sort of element of Nazi ideology. And uh, as we said um, in the Hitler myth, uh, it, it, it seems that much more his, his motivation for expansion and conquer of the USSR uh, was much more his uh, hatred of Judeo-Bolshevism, like on a more sort of conceptual level. And it was really more um, the thought of Herbert Backer. Um, he was really the sort of, I suppose you could think that the direct cause of or direct sort of advocate for expansion into the Soviet Union, primarily on economic grounds. Um, and I mean, obviously this conveniently dovetailed with Hitler's own aims, um, but it seems like he was the radicalizing element to provide um, what uh, Collingham writes is like um, a sound economic reason for this attack into the Soviet Union. And sort of further to that, there's um, seemingly like the immediate needs that leading into uh, 1941 or sort of as things evolve, uh, expand over the course of 1941, there is an immediate concern of addressing uh, a shortfall in the, um, the food supply situation. So obviously, um, well, I say obviously, so up to this point, Germany uh, and the conquered territories were never sort of self-sufficient in terms of food production, which was a massive drain. But then the other, other massive drain uh, on, on, on the food resources was the, the German army, the Wehrmacht, um, which um, of course was representing an increasingly larger pool of men. So not only did this mean that they had fewer skilled laborers to actually perform the agricultural work, uh, but uh, I mean, this might not be obvious, but you know, a fighting uh, man in, in, an, in an active conflict uh, is going to consume more calories than uh, someone at home. 
so obviously these are two big stresses and uh, these, these two elements are quite new, new sort of things for me at least um i, I don't know if, if you have anything more to that point Simon. well something that i picked up from um lizzie collingham's uh, narrative was that the um the nazis actually had an outlined policy that they they set out to implement Just, they they deliberately set out to to starve the populations of um the eastern european territories that they occupied um yeah it was it was quite shocking really i mean i i from the previous books that we've read um ring of steel particularly you know there was a, an emphasis on um the damage that war did to the economy into uh, farming in particular and, and how that kind of led uh, to starvation of the populations in those in those areas. Uh, but I really didn't appreciate that it was a, a, a deliberate policy that they, they actually actively set out to starve uh, people rather than um, that it was, uh, a, you know, um, a side effect of the, the occupation. Um, yeah. That was, I found that quite shocking. You're specifically relating to the, the hunger plan um, in, in that respect, yeah. And um, that that was uh, primarily um, this sort of brainchild of Herbert Backer. And I mean, that so, sort of had, again, sort of multiple different elements to it, but basically they kind of found themselves in a situation where um, they weren't able to support the, the, the home front and um, the active uh, what the, the, the army in the field um, from just what the resources they had domestically. So the idea was both that um, the, the, the army would be able to support itself from what resources it could requisition from the conquered territories, um, but also that it would deliberately uh, enact a policy of trying to extract, uh, what well, in this case, food resources uh, from the local population as well, um, which, uh, I mean, it, it, it didn't really seem to solve any problems because um, not only was there like a continuing sort of shortfall um, of resources, um, you know, despite despite all of the, 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 the efforts, um, it also, you know, obviously led to a lot of ill feeling within the local populations. And um, despite the uh, initial sort of belief that the campaign or you know, Operation Barbarossa would be a relatively short-lived campaign, um, once it sort of bogged down into a longer term drawn out combat, um, it, you know, it obviously fed a lot of ill will towards the German army, the occupying Germans, and also sort of added fuel to the partisan forces that um, broke out uh, in 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 the sort of uh, the behind the lines. That's it. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. And and the, the other interesting element is basically, I mean, it's basically, you know, one of the common common themes talking about Nazi Germany is that it's this like toxic mix of sort of um, I suppose you could call it incompetence as well as sort of idolatry um, in that or oh, idolatry. That's something else. <laughs> Ideology in that um, th th there was basically uh, kind of always front of mind this belief that, you know, that, that the only way for this sort of self-sufficiency lies in extracting resources from Eastern Europe. 
um, which led to a lot of mismanagement and heavy handedness in other occupied territories. Um, and she provides a statistic that um, food production in conquered territories was down by as much as 40% by 1940. And so by this time, we're talking about uh, the low countries, France, uh, Denmark, Norway, um, which could have quite easily been um, righted, but obviously it becomes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that they're seeing this drop in production and lack of um, lack of, of this shortfall in food production, uh, which obviously fuels this belief that, oh, well, we can only sort of fill that shortfall, shortfall, shortfall by moving eastwards. Um, but then again, because of this mismanagement, it, it's never really sort of corrected. And another interesting element I sort of picked up on just um, like reviewing some notes um, was that, um, that, that because of this increased um, mechanization of, of agriculture and especially relatively recently within the Eastern Europe, Ukraine, for instance, it is basically by sort of advocating for this conquest of Eastern Europe um, there was always kind of a requirement to go further and establish sufficient oil supplies as well. So you can kind of see that it kind of leads to this um, opening up of the theater that, um, you know, just to paraphrase, you know, that by, by advocating for this conquest of the agricultural areas um, to actually maximize the utilization of those areas, they have to go that much further and obviously that leads to the the, the con uh, leads to the conflict in the Caucasus as well. Yeah, no, I, I agree with, with all of that. I think as well it's worth mentioning that the one of the key strategies it seemed from the, the Nazi perspective was maintaining food supply um, on the home front as well, because that had been a um, a major source of unhappiness, I suppose, in, during the First World War, it led to a lot of, um, well, I don't, I, I don't know, actually, because, I mean, it, it was it was suggested that it led to the, the kind of overthrow of the, um, the German government during the First World War because of the, the food shortages, but I don't know. I, I, I kind of feel like that was a, a secondary um, secondary calls um, from, from the other reading that we've done in, in Ring of Steel and, um, and uh, some other books, but it was definitely like forefront in the minds of the, the Nazi high command was this fear of um, popular opinion turning against them on the home front. And so there was a, a real determination by um, the Nazis to maintain a steady uh, level of, of food production and supply for the German population at home, um, which they did kind of achieve. I mean, Lizzie Collingham says that the, the, it wasn't really, although the food, you know, became quite bland, it became difficult to, to uh, procure kind of more exotic foods and things like sugar disappeared and they had to kind of survive off of Ersatz coffee, the, um, substitute coffee and things like that they did manage to maintain a, a steady level of food and it was only in in the aftermath of the, the second world war that um the german population suffered a real kind of food shortages um so yeah that was that was something that was that was kind of 
an interesting point, I suppose, in, in the broader strategic sense. The, the, the Nazi leadership always placed the well-being of the, the kind of German homelands above every, every other consideration, which in part was why they overexploited the, the territories that they conquered and it led to the, the kind of, um, you know, uh, diminishing returns that you were talking about earlier, where the more that they tried to extract from the conquered territories, the less they were actually able to get because they were so widely resented. I, I don't have as much to say, but I suppose with Japan, I was just jumping, I, I think it makes a nice segue from Germany because it's the most close match to Germany in, in this conflict because they are one the main aggressors. And similar to Germany, they have like this grand strategy in mind of establishing, I think they call it a co-prosperity, co-prosperity sphere in Eastern Asia. And again, this is just sort of essentially a trading block where they're able to be more or less self-sufficient. Um, and in, in their case, in opposition to the, the Western powers that are somewhat already, as to what they're already established in this area. Um, and again, similarly to, to Germany, um, that they are relatively um, resource poor, uh, at least when it comes to foodstuffs. Um, and already in the early 30s, there's the outbreak of the first Sino-Japanese War, uh, which um, leads to the occupation of Manchuria. Um, and this is what's seen initially as a big boon to boon to the Japanese war effort, the Japanese home, home front, because it is treated, well, Manchuria as well as Korea, treated as something of a breadbasket. But again, due to their mismanagement um, and in large part because of their racist ideology, they're never able to um, achieve uh, even the sort of um, the output previous to the, the, the conflicts or the conquest of these areas. And it never really sort of um, achieves the, um, the promise that they sort of hoped um, but by taking these areas um, and throughout the conflicts and perhaps more so than any of the other major combatants, um, at least in the West, leads to chronic food shortages, both for the army as well as the home front. Um, I, don't, I don't know what, what else you want to add to that. I, I think you summed it up really well. Um, yeah, the I guess something that struck me about the Japanese strategic considerations, um, as as outlined in in the book, were that um, first of all they they started their kind of the Japanese Russian War in the nineteen thirties, so they'd already been fighting for quite a long time by the beginning of the the Second World War. Um, but they had ideologically, they weren't only linked to the Nazis ideologically in the sense of their kind of uh, racial um, theories and beliefs, but they were also linked in, in the sense that they, both Japan and the Nazi Germany, um, and Nazi Germany were trying to create empires overseas to supplement their own economies they they kind of looked to conquest to supply shortages uh, that they were suffering currently and one of the one of the issues for the japanese uh, government 
in the 1920s and 1930s were that, was that farming was becoming increasingly less productive uh, because the farms were quite small by kind of American and, and British standards who tended to be kind of like smaller holdings and uh, not very uh, modern. Uh, they didn't use a, a huge amount of kind of mechanization. And rents were also very high. So it meant that kind of Japanese farmers in Japan were not really incentivized to produce surplus because they ended up losing a lot of it to rent and things like that. So there was a kind of idea that they would, um, by taking over land in China, um, create, like you were saying, a, a breadbasket for themselves that would then feed the growing urban population um, in Japan. But that never really materialized. And part of part of the reason why it didn't materialize was, um, as you say, the mismanagement um, that was uh, essentially driven by the racism of the of the the government, the ideology that underpinned it, that they were just kind of evicting um, indigenous Chinese farmers and and replacing those people with um, Japanese farmers who weren't as who didn't know the the region as well, didn't know the the soils as well, and weren't able to make the farms as productive. So the kind of hoped for crops didn't really materialize in the in the kind of quantities that they 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 wanted. The other big issue for the Japanese during the during the fighting of the, the Second World War was that they very quickly found that the um, U.S. Navy were able to intercept and, and uh, um, basically besiege the the main island of Japan. So even when they did conquer um, Burma and you know secure for themselves quite large rice producing areas the Japanese population weren't able to benefit from that because they weren't able to get the food back to um, to the islands. Yeah, that's the case. I see in uh, the notes, I've, I've made the typo, I've written naval as N-A-V-E-L. So uh, even more, more critical in this case. But yeah, so basically uh, throughout the, the conflicts, Japanese were never able to um, have, have security of, of transport over the water um, which, what well, I, I think, in, in part led to them uh, needing to conquer more and more um, of China to, to establish some sort of trade route or sort of uh, logistics uh, over land. Um, but yeah, as you say, and like similar to to Germany, like that they have similar sort of agriculture situation. Probably come to a little bit later, but one of the um, the stresses or one of the sort of sort of blocks on actually increasing modernization was this lack of sort of, of the increasing mechanization of the agriculture was this lack of both the raw materials as well as, as the fuel to actually sustain it. And that's just one of these things that comes up time and again. Um, and then there's sort of kind of two other broad categories of combatant, what I say three-ish. Um, so there's the, the British Empire, um, which is kind of what well, I suppose in terms of strategic considerations, it, it's much more about sort of re retaining the, the sort of standard of living as, as much as possible. Um, I suppose similar to Germany, um, there's this sort of um, recurring fear about maintaining the home front, um, again, um, due to the experience of the First World War, um, because 
by this point, well, I think well into the probably earlier in the 20th century, like Britain at this point was, was not really able to maintain its food levels without imports um, to totally some extent. And um, kind of similar to Germany, I was, so Lizzie Colley Colliam does kind of lump to together for this reason, um, that there's this um, uh, stress to uh, maintain supplies in the UK or at least the, the dominions, uh, typically the sort of majority white territories of the British Empire um, at uh, the extent of other territories. And this is the term she uses, exporting hunger. I don't know if that's actually her term, but she uses it enough. So there you go. Um, I, I quite like it, um, but pra practical considerations rather than maybe something more nefarious. Um, but that there is kind of a sense that similar to Germany, uh, there's never really any um, substantiated risk, like the, 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 the home front to a certain extent could have done without, but it was just this overriding sort of fear as to um, the risk of unrest and what that might sort of unfold from that. Um, and that there isn't, apart from say some a few periods uh, around sort of the Battle of Britain, um, that there isn't really any sort of sustained risk to the home front su supply situation at least. Um, and we can come back to this a, a little bit more uh, later, but again, it, it's much more a concern at convenience, uh, uh, a risk of just a fear of, of, of what could happen uh, rather than sort of any sort of substantiated um, risk to the home front. I agree with that. I mean, I think, like you already mentioned, the author, uh, Lizzie Collingham, she really does draw quite a parallel between Britain and Germany and the kind of strategic considerations for food during the Second World War, really driven by experiences of the First World War and the kind of morale, well, the, the fear of um, unrest on the home front caused by... Um, inadequate food supply. So that was really kind of central to the, the British thinking. Um, and like you mentioned, the, the British kind of then used their overseas empire to, to really feed the home population of, of the UK um, in, in ways that essentially disadvantaged and, and um, the, the colonial populations and the dominion populations and in you know, the case of India led to uh, the Bengal famine uh, which killed millions of people um, because the well in the book itself uh, Lizzie Collingham suggests it wasn't a deliberate policy as you've, you've already mentioned um, it was more a case of kind of mismanagement and um, bad luck as well um, the the, the uh, empire lost kind of the Burmese territories, which were key to feeding uh, a lot of the Bengali population at the time. But um, there was, a, I, I, I felt there was a, a sense that there was an element of um, using hunger um, in, in those decisions. Certainly, like she mentions, Winston Churchill was, um, you know, reluctant to divert food away from the United Kingdom um, 
even though he knew that the the Bengali famine was was ongoing because he he was racist himself. He didn't have um, a, he didn't have a very good opinion of of the colonial populations. So I think that was you know something that I wasn't aware of before and uh, and picked up on. Um, also, I guess that the while the British and German strategies around you know maintaining food levels on the home front were very similar i felt from the book that the british were able to succeed in their policy rather uh, better than the uh, germans because they already had an overseas empire that they could exploit yeah the british were you know adherents with the germany was able to succeed with what well, succeed i suppose perhaps in scare quotes um with with this policy of exporting hunger and i suppose it is one of the the ironies um, of this period in that um, it's precisely this, well, I, I suppose it's not truly ironic because it was like, a, by this point, the British Empire, there were, there were quite big like trade barriers to um, other, other countries, but it, it's precisely this sort of ability to have international trades that they were able to sustain the war effort, which, you know, the, the, Hitler, at least, w w was quite um, a staunch uh, critical. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I suppose that's one thing. And and I, uh, the, the other two combatants, I would say, are, are somewhat similar um, with this respect. So we're talking about the US, USSR and China. So I, I would say they're somewhat similar um, because in both cases, um, they had to suffer um, the conquest of a large swathe of their uh, territory and at least proportionally perhaps not so much in, in the Soviet Union but um, they were economically vital especially when it came to agriculture so throughout basically 1941 to 1943 they lost essentially the break basket which was the Ukraine um, and had to sort of manage around that be it through um, fairly draconian measures um, both domestically as well as the use of um, imports from the allies that like lend lease program did quite a lot to sustain the war effort um, it, for, for, for both combatants in, in this case um, i would say that this is kind of i, I don't know maybe a bit, bit of a weak point but it, it does lead to one of my sort of maybe misgivings with this book so basically the conclusion for both these combatants is that because um of recent history you have like a, essentially a peasant population which is somewhat accustomed to this sort of uh, level of hardship so for instance in the soviet union you have um essentially state-sponsored famine um the holodomor in ukraine which led to citizens uh, essentially being able to to cope with quite harsh uh, food uh, situation uh, as well as being somewhat self-sufficient despite the fact that they had to deal with this um, what what is the term a uh, collectivized uh, agriculture they were able to work around that and um, added to the fact that by the time Nazis came in uh, any sort of collectivized agriculture was a lot worse managed so they're able to work around that much more so 
um, but also sort of make do with a sort of foraging for food, sort of making use of ersatz um, food as well. Um, and it's similar to it's similar in, in China, I, I, to a certain extent. Um, again, they had to make do with a lot of the, the, the best industrial and farming areas being um, occupied throughout this time. Um, and I suppose the two other interesting points that poured out is that in the Soviet Union, um, there was quite a deliberate policy of uh, extracting food from rural areas at the ex uh, extracting food for the benefit of urban areas at the expense of rural areas to maintain um, their industrial base, um, as well as being somewhat aware of that the needs to feed the urban population um, to sort of maintain the the, the war effort and to avoid a repeat of the um, the revolution in 1917. Um, and a slightly different point is that in China, um, we see that the sort of communists sort of make the most of uh, this policy of uh, sort of working with the farmers to sort of take from them or extract from them or more uh, what would be the words? A, a more um... they only took what they needed, or that the, the yeah, policy yeah. was that they would only take what was absolutely necessary for the the soldiers. So that was in contrast to um, their opponents, who um, the 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 kind of counter revolutionary forces in China and the Japanese as well, who extracted everything that they possibly could. Um, so in the kind of battle for um, hearts and minds of the, the rural population, the communists, Chinese, um, ended the war in a, in, a, in, a, um, in a better position because they were seen as being the lesser of, of the various evils that beset the, the people at that point. Yeah, yeah that, that, that was what I was trying to get across yeah so and just a brief note on the usa so basically they don't really fit into this picture overall because not only are they more or less uh, isolated from any sort of uh you know direct combat or you know fair enough there, there was occupation of u.s territory um not only was the the war um um quite a significant element to their recovery from the great depression um, but it also led to um, was quite a key element to uh, th their ability to uh, expand and sort of maintain um, their presence or the, the sort of globalization. Nah, what I'm trying to say. So it was basically a key element to uh, their expanding sort of global influence both during and after the Second World War. Um, and it, it's kind of Precisely, or it seems to be like a direct line between the sort of war effort and this increasing modernization of uh, of these U.S. Uh, agricultural industry as well. Yeah, and the the U.S. Uh, I got the impression from the book as well was kind of um, almost like the litmus test for the rest of the world in terms of the future of farming, where. Um, you know, government policies during the 30s and, and indeed throughout the, the Second World War um, 
emphasized modernization, they emphasized mechanization, they emphasized um, increasing uh, concentration of, of land in, um, in the hands of kind of big landowners, big farms, um, industrial farming. Um, and that's, those are the, the kind of agricultural areas that really won out in, uh, in from from US government policy during that period. And that was kind of, um, it kind of set the tone, I suppose, for, for farming after the war, which um, the author does kind of touch on a little bit in the concluding chapter of, of the book. Um, so yeah, they, they kind of, uh, yeah, set the scene, I suppose. I also found really interesting in those, the kind of early chapters about the US, um, the description of the development of like freezing technology and um, just some of the the foods that we take for granted now that were, were kind of novel and new at the time. And the idea that Captain Birdseye was actually a man who lived, I thought he was just a, um, a cartoon character, but he, he did in fact live and he uh, did in fact study freezing technology and, and, and learned a lot from the Inuits apparently before, you know, setting up his own farm uh, in America. Um, so yeah, quite fascinating from that from that side of things as well. Yeah, I suppose in, in the scope of this book, the US stuff was a bit more lighthearted. Um, well, I say that there was some pretty bad stuff as well, but I, I like to think there's, you know, somewhere Captain Bird's eye is like frozen solid, <laughs> like waiting for medical technology to advance. A once and future farmer. Yeah, I suppose this is as good a time as any is. Where do you stand on corned beef versus spam? I, yeah, I mean, neither is my answer. Um, I think that, like, if I had to choose, uh, no, no thanks. But um, <laughs> yeah, corned beef, I suppose, slight preference because I have memories of eating it as a child. Um, spam, I have no memories of, and it sounds alien and horrible. So, yeah, I do remember, I didn't, well, to be honest, I, I mean, not that I would know, but I didn't realise it was more of a British or, like, that's uh, an Anglo-British sort of thing. I, I thought it was just something you get everywhere, but, um, yeah, apparently spam is more of a US thing. I would kind of explain, because I know, like, spam you get in, in some, like, East Asian dishes as well. Mm -hmm. um, and um, that, that makes a bit more sense, but, yeah, I, I didn't realise that. Um, yeah, and then sort of further to your point, um, it was the the sort of precisely this demand of the, the US war effort that also led to some of the financing and modernization of, say, the, the Australian agricultural industry as well, which um, I suppose long term, it, it had a lot of benefits to, to those areas, but what was quite a, a stressor at the time uh, as well. So... Um, yeah, um, I, I suppose this sort of related point was the fact that um, although there was sort of this growing body of work within nutritional science um, leading up to the, the Second World War, I, I think as if I remember correctly, in, in the First World War, there was the first sort of practical use of like calorie uh, requirements to sort of gauge 
how to ration foods and by sort of uh, like worker or like um, I suppose needs. Um, it was precisely as you could imagine the World War II that um, brought this into new focus. Um, and it, it sort of, it, in, in, yeah, it brought it into a new focus and sort of evolved over that period. And they're the, the quite, well, quite some shocking sort of elements to it, but then also sort of more um, sort of practical needs. So that there's, I think she uses the term um, maybe more so in Germany, this sort of leveling down um, of, of sort of uh, nutritional, um, of meeting nutritional requirements so that you found that, you know, things got sort of more plain or sort of less exotic, less fancy, but overall sort of health increased, especially sort of in the UK and Germany, for instance. Yeah, yeah, because, um, well, she made some point in the, the British food economy, at least, um, during the kind of 19th century and um, or late 19th century and all through the kind of early 20th century um, there was a kind of preference for certain food types over others as like a, a, an emphasis on meat as being kind of the preferred kind of fuel food and there was a lot of reliance on sugar um, especially among the, the working classes to kind of like uh, give themselves the energy that they needed for their for their uh, work, um, and it wasn't until the kind of the, the Second World War that there was more of a understanding of the role of um, vitamins and minerals and and those kind of other elements of nutrition. Uh, it wasn't just a, an emphasis solely on the number of calories that people needed to to eat, and it allowed um, nutritional scientists to um, improve the health of the, the general population. Yeah, and this is uh, one of the other interesting points because it's, um, I mean, perhaps not such a surprise that like uh, preferences for food has a sort of strong political element to it as well. Um, but especially between, I, I think the biggest contrast would be between say the UK and British Empire versus Germany is that um, uh, because of the, the the influence of the or the impact of the the, the empire and, and trade within the empire in the UK at least that there's a strong preference for as you said like sugars and like highly processed foods um, and this is perhaps um, best demonstrated by um, sort of the status that white bread has amongst the, the British population and this is um, in contrast to to Germany where I, th I think like proceeding to the war, there was, there was quite a, a, a preference for like unprocessed foods, like like rye bread, especially. Um, but this also becomes like a point of sort of national sort of interest uh, that there's a sort of strong emphasis on say rye bread or, or sort of whole milk, whole grain breads, um, be, because they are more easy to sort of manufacture at home. Um, and I, I think as the sort of war sort of develops and there's a stress for or that there's sort of added stress to uh, container and shipping space to Britain uh, the sort of government has to step in and sort of promote the consumption of whole grain 
foods, um, despite this preference for processed flour to sort of meet this need, um, which is another interesting thing. And also like the, the sort of added emphasis of exotic foods, um, like fruits and vegetables um, in, in person compared to Germany as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also I think it's worth mentioning, um, I suppose we're kind of almost moving into the political situation side of, of things as well, but there was a real, um, emphasis by the Nazi party in the 1930s to try to um, shift the reliance of um, the German population away from imported foods and onto kind of homegrown stuff like you were saying. Um, and there were commissions set up to, to uh, try to control um, the produce that German farmers were uh, growing and, and uh, supplying, uh, which was actually in the end, um, counterproductive because firstly the farmers kind of uh were irked by the requirements to to produce certain certain foodstuffs that weren't as um economically viable uh, for them as you know uh, the kind of things that they wanted to focus on so there was a kind of shift away from meat as being you know as a very valuable thing to to sell for the farmers to produce but um it was not necessarily something that the, the government wanted them to to focus on because they wanted to kind of promote um self-sufficiency um but yeah it it, it, it then related resulted in in german farms becoming less productive because the farmers had less um incentive to to farm basically to create a surplus and, and it, it caused people to to become more insular in their approach to to you know procuring food growing food um, and you saw that happening in the occupied territories as well particularly i think she mentions france um and the french farmers being being a key kind of part of that economy where you know There was more emphasis on um, less emphasis. I completely lost my train of thought. So there's a, a child shouting outside. Um, it's like, how inconsiderate! I know. I know. I know, I know, I know we have a podcast to recall. <laughs> uh, what was I saying? So yeah, so there, there was a similar kind of situation in the German occupied territories where there was this. You know, the farmers retreated into self-sufficiency at the expense of um, uh, the, at the expense of the government's needs because they were weren't um, incentivized to produce more than more than they needed. Yeah, yeah, you're putting my um, my 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 categories to shame, but yeah, fair enough. I, I mean, this guy's gonna jump around a bit, but yeah. So like. Um... As you said, so in a lot of the occupied territories, um, uh, German occupied territories, there's um, basically a, a net loss of, of food production um, just because there's, I mean, essentially, it's, as I was saying, it's, it's, it, in, in these notes, like there's a, the worst of both worlds because it's in a lot of these places, it's a relatively, um, uh, relatively old fashioned way of doing things. You have relatively small land holdings. Um, but there isn't um, 
that, that there isn't like the sort of modern equipment to sort of handle that. On the other hand, that there isn't really the collectivized approach of managing large um, agricultural holdings. Um, and I think the only sort of counter example she mentions is, is Denmark, which um, for a combination of, well, it seems pr primarily it's basically based around the, their racist ideology that they're more content to let the Danes do it themselves, which actually leads them to producing a surplus um, uh, with um, relatively little direct intervention uh, by the Nazi government. Um, and she kind of says, well, this would be kind of the model of doing things elsewhere in Europe. Um, yeah. And also, yeah, the other interesting thing is, I, th I think you're mentioning was that basically you have in, in Germany, uh, the, these fairly small uh, unmodernized land holdings, um, which are kind of doing a bit of everything. Um, and this lack of specialization means that individually that there's somewhat self-sufficient, which means that they're a bit more happy to sort of cut themselves off um, with, the, with the wider sort of agricultural economy, which is not uh, the same, uh, not, not as true as say the US and the UK, where you have these, these larger, more specialized um, f farm holdings, which are, are less uh, capable of sort of less capable of cutting themselves off and acting independently if they are unhappy with these quotas, which is, is again something that sort of works against the Nazi war effort as well. Um, yeah, I, I think that's the main thing. There. I, th I think the only other thing when it comes to sort of the the sort of political sort of aspect or like strategic sort of aspect would be, um, I, th I think was, we sort of talked about a little bit, but just to name it. So um, that I, I think they're quite like two distinct things, but they kind of sort of overlap a little bit, a little bit. And this is the hunger plan and uh, general plan Ost. Um, I know that's not correct, Jim, but, um, and they kind of, um, that they're quite similar in the sense of they're kind of this sort of fairly bloody-minded approach to sort of extracting resources from these conquered territories, especially in Eastern Europe. Um, and similarly, they, they have, um, or they sort of provide, I suppose, the theoretical backing for the, the actual sort of plans that are implemented, but for a number of reasons, not least the fact that there is an active war that never really settled that settles down in the East, um, they're never sort of fully uh, implemented. Um, I mean, obviously that's probably for the benefit of everyone, um, but that there is kind of this sort of um, ideological backing that has a president sort of some years back. And uh, especially in the case of the hunger plan, it, it's kind of this uh, a radicalizing element of the Holocaust in that uh, it, it, it sort of, essentially it moves up a notch. Like it's not just about sort of um, moving these peoples um, out of areas. It's also about denying them uh, foods, not just to, um, you know, sort of reducing their ability to get the food that they want, but actually removing any ability to extract actual 
food that they would need to survive a very sort of basic um, level of existence as well. Yeah, I think she she does mention, doesn't she, that um, the the Nazis were kind of um, frustrated. They found that that the policy of of deliberate starvation took longer than they were expecting, and that kind of pushed them towards the um, organized murder of the the Holocaust and the death camps. Um, I think I read that right in the book. I, I, that was that was my reading of it, certainly. I think, uh, yeah. So, so, so there's there's that, but then there's also the the um, like the, the trying to work out. You know, I, I think they come up with um, I, I don't know where these numbers come from, but they, you know, they come to the determination that it's better to feed one worker adequately for their needs rather than sort of give half rations for two workers because you, you would lose product you would have a net loss of productivity productivity that way um but there's also i mean there's the other element to it it's basically that given the food supply situation um like even outside of this like ideology that they have basically by 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 take going into eastern europe by putting these stresses on the food supply um, even if they had, you know, the best of intentions, they would basically be adding in this factor which would like decimate the population because there was no way they would be able to supply the adequate food resources um, simply by, you know, disrupting um, the supply chain. Um, and that's just, I think further to the point, which, which is not just in this book, but like many other authors have talked on, that you can't really um, support any notion of a clean Wehrmacht um, if you are going to also say that they are advocating for this invasion, because by implication of invading these territories, they are going to um, lead to these humanitarian crises um, just by virtue of being there. Um, but then added onto that is the fact that well, actually, I can get onto this in the next section, but added onto that is the fact that they are quite explicitly instructed to extract as much as they can uh, without any thought for the local population. Yeah, yeah. Um, which brings us into the next section, which is all about logistics. Well, I've called it logistics. It really kind of goes all over the place. Um, so, but basically, um, when it comes to the the German war effort is that uh, by sort of already by sort of 1940, 1941, um, they're eating into their reserves of food. There's kind of this understanding that without of extracting further resources, um, that the sort of war effort is is going to sort of um, like fall on its knees by this point. And so the, the sort of the um, so solution that they go with is to uh, extract food from the conquered territories um, and then to stop moving food out of out of Germany. So this is to say the Wehrmacht uh, in the first instance is to try to live off the land as much as possible, but then also over time to try and sort of send as much as they can back to the home front um, and to the extent that um, 
soldiers um, but, but are instructed to sort of take as much with them as they, they go, go home on leave, uh, which has like well, very mixed results as well. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't really have anything else to, to add to that. I mean, I think that the you, you covered everything is with regards to the German kind of logistical thinking. Um, I don't uh, want to pick up on the other one. So. Sorry, yeah, okay. Uh, so moving on to, um, shall I go to the British? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, the main, as we've kind of already spoken about, the main um, concern of the British government with regard to the food situation was maintaining the supplies. Um, and that was, you know, in direct response to the British experience of the First World War. Um, so there was a lot of emphasis placed on um, keeping the flow of shipping across the Atlantic going. Um, and there was, you know, a lot of work done towards kind of maximizing capacity of the ships as well. So that, uh, you know, food um, that previously had been transported uh, from the Americas and um, from the colonies into Britain had, had tended to be kind of like carcasses of meat and things like that. And there was a, uh, renewed emphasis on on tinned goods and things that would basically be maximized the amount of um, uh, food that could be transported in the available vessels. Um, this also um, led to a kind of British policy to uh, Try to make the or basically or not really try to make they they essentially ordered the colonies and the colonial governments to become as self-sufficient as they as they could which um had quite serious consequences for a lot of the farmers in those uh regions who was kind of specialized in growing cash crops for um the british market like sugar and cocoa and things like that who suddenly found that they had to switch to um uh, producing you know uh, other foods um yeah and that 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 led to uh famine in africa and um of course in in india as well um and kind of tragically really the the as you pointed out in your notes the danger to British shipping was never as, as acute as was anticipated. So the actual kind of big logistical supply crisis that the British faced were actually uh, trying to find enough warehouse space for the food once it arrived in the UK. And I think Lizzie Collingham uh, has a couple of anecdotes about, you know, food just kind of sitting on the docks, waiting to be um, sent further inland uh, because of you know, just not having any warehouses to store it in, not having enough uh, transport, um, not having enough trains to transport it inland, and also damage that the, um, the Luftwaffe was causing to 
to British um, transport networks and things like that. So that, um, yeah, affected the ability of the, the British to move the food that was actually arriving in the UK around to the places it was needed. Um, I guess, is it worth saying, talking at this point about the kind of British government policies in terms of uh, dig for victory and um, the land army and things like that, or is that covered? Do you want to cover that elsewhere? Uh, no, I just stopped you. Um, I, just, I just want want to see because um, there are two things that I didn't know about before I read this book. So when you talk about the supply situation in the UK, it's quite interesting to pick that uh, probably as as a whole, the UK did have sufficient warehouse space and um, a train capacity, but because of the, the threat of the German bombing campaigns, they shifted um, all of the shipping from the east and south coast to the west coast, uh, which meant that there was an added premium for warehouse space. But then also there was the problem that uh, a lot of these warehouses didn't have the adequate uh, train connections to the, the main population centers, which meant that there were these added stresses to um, the, the supply chains, which um, are quite separate to any sort of immediate threat that the German um, Air Force posed. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, very good to know. Should we talk about one of the other circumstances? Uh, yeah, I can do. Um, I mean, to be honest, I don't have, well, I do have. So basically, um, Japan, so as we, as we said before, um, as we as we said before, the, the logistics were, were never that great, um, and so throughout the conflict, they're unable to maintain supplies over water um, due to Allied intervention. But what what is um, one of what one of the mind-boggling aspects of this is that the the Japanese um, sort of military planners sort of um, had to work around these poor sort of um, supply chain issues by sort of uh, planning operations in anticipation of acquiring uh, allied supplies. So basically, you know, troops were often given maybe days worth of food supplies uh, with the expectation that they would be able to secure um, supply depots. Um, and in some cases it, it worked quite spectacularly. So I think they used the pejorative term, uh, was it Churchill? presence or something um, as a way of sort of referring to the British supply depots that they were able to secure. But over time, um, not just, not least because of the, the lack of success, but also uh, the Allies sort of, uh, sort of clue up on this. They aren't able to supply this. They aren't able to um, secure the supplies that they were previously able to. And although there is some effort to um, improve the situation over time, uh, very often the, the troops are just required to um, fend for themselves to the extent that um, it, it seems that most of the time 
is spent just trying to uh, secure and provide adequate food for themselves rather than actually sort of, uh, you know, force a military situation on, on their enemies. Um, and this leads to, I, I don't know if she writes it in the book, but it's definitely in the lecture. She sort of refers, it, refers to it as the sort of Monty Python Black Knight situation where, um, you know, as, as part of their sort of Banzai, uh, like spirit or sort of philosophy, um, you know, the, the, the troops are instructed to sort of use anything that they can. So if they lose the arms, use the, you know, if they lose the arms, they fight with the legs. If they lose the legs, they fight with the head. If they lose the, you know, something else, they just carry on. So it, it's, it's quite a, um, it's quite an extreme, approach to doing this and I, I think she characterizes this as basically this like sliding scale of like that the less well equipped equipped uh troops are in sort of all combatant nations that the more the sort of emphasis on sort of individual fighting fighting spirit sort of overcoming all odds which um definitely seems very true in the, in the japanese army yeah that's that's true and um, but something I found really surprising and shocking about about the book, um, I mean, not only was the the idea that the, the Japanese kind of high command, as you mentioned, they they just completely, well, they seemingly neglected the logistical supply of their own soldiers. Um, they just assumed that this fighting spirit would would carry them through. Um, but there were two really shocking things about the logistics of, of the Japanese army or government, really, I suppose, during the, the Second World War that this book, um, that I learned from this book. The first one was that the Japanese government, when they uh, attacked Pearl Harbor, knew that they couldn't defeat America. They didn't, they didn't expect to win a war against the US government. Um, but they attacked anyway, hoping to kind of bring the US to the negotiating table uh, before they lost the war. So, I mean, it, it, it's just incredible to think that they, they would actually begin a war that they knew they had no way of winning, um, just on the basis of hoping that they could um, bring about a compromise, a, a, a kind of stalemate rather than um, yeah, rather than having any any kind of more positive plans to win a war. Um, but the second thing that I, I learned from this book about the, the Japanese, which is really quite tragic, was that the Japanese army going into the, the Second World War uh, was one of the most advanced in terms of the nutritional science. They'd actually spent quite a lot of effort in the 1930s trying to um, improve the diet of their army the, the individual soldiers that tried to um, create foods that were palatable to all the different um, regional food tastes that made up the Japanese army. Uh, they'd really done a lot of work in terms of nutritional uh, and logistical supply. And seemingly just threw that one out the window um, as, as soon as the fighting kind of got, got really uh, intense during the Second World War, they, they just, um, yeah, un unlearned those lessons or, or forgot those lessons. As you're saying um, about the sort of Japanese army and especially the nutritional science, um, I, I don't actually remember, um, to be honest, um, about that in the book. But uh, yeah, it's a good point. And um, 
I suppose in a lot of cases, it's just, you know, they have to sort of make the, the practical choice, right? And, um, but it seems like the, um, the Japanese, uh, especially, they, they have to substitute their diet with a lot of like ersatz foods and or sort of, um, I suppose, like suboptimal sub, sub foods as well. Um, just to, you know, keep the sort of the, the war effort going. Um, I mean, just to, to wrap, I mean, because in, in both cases, well, no, they're, they're quite different. So just as the Soviet Union, just to say, because it, it's one of my favorite quotes ever, um, is that um, obviously, as we said, like the, the Soviet Union has to deal with the loss of uh, that sort of primary sort of agricultural areas and sort of have to manage around that as much as possible. And one of the, the sort of main sort of elements of that is the the use of the land lease um, act so that they're able to supply uh, the diet with, or supplement the diet with foods from the British Empire in the US. And um, this births uh, one of my favorite quotes, um, which is the soldiers would comment when they're opening up the cans of, of white meat or spam, that this is the opening of the new front um, and I just love it um, for, for multiple reasons, but I mean, obviously that there's um, a bit of a backhander compliment there because of some of the, um, you know, Stalin and other members of the Politburo are not, not happy with um, the seeming reticence to sort of invest um, other allied soldiers in, uh, in other spheres of the um, European conflict, but yeah, that, that's neither, or there. neither here or there. One of the sort of main reasons why the Nazis got into power when they did. Um, so I think maybe it's just because that they formed a more sort of unified political class mm. um, compared to say uh, other areas. But I'm not sure. And I, I suppose my implication, the same would be true in the Japanese Empire. But I'm not too sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But um, is it worth saying actually? Just as a final thing about agriculture, I think you've already touched on it, but um, you know, across the almost universally across all of the combatant nations, there was this kind of pri uh, privileging of the urban population over the rural population. So there was always a awareness of um, you know the mechanized nature of modern warfare production was vital to maintaining um, a working, functioning uh, army. So there was a kind of sense of, you know, the factory workers in the cities being more crucial to the war effort than the, than the rural farmers. And that seemed to just be um, the case around the world, really. Yeah, I certainly, certainly, I mean, in the, in the cases of countries where uh, it, one sort of segment of society had to go without, say, USSR, um, China, to some extent, uh, there certainly seems to be an emphasis on providing for the urban population centers versus uh, over the rural population centers. But I guess I wonder, I mean, apart from the economic side of things, I guess there's the other element of it's perhaps more practically uh more practical to um provide for these more concentrated population centers just logistic reasons and also perhaps just 
from the government perspective, it's more disconcerting to have like um, a concentration of people who are threatening unrest versus like more dispersed population uh, centers. Uh, but you know, I mean, that's probably just uh, reality of these things. Do you want to do your conclusions, concluding thoughts? Uh, yeah, I, I do. So, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. So I came into this book, I was really excited to read it. Uh, I did enjoy it, um, but I, I think um, I'm a bit disappointed with it, as I said multiple times in, in, in different conversations. So I think my main disappointment was just, um, well, it basically stems from the fact that she concludes with saying that uh, essentially the food situation um, didn't really determine the outcome of the war. And to be honest, like going through the book, I think you can't really come away with any other conclusion because the, the main sort of what the two main belligerents, Soviet Union and the China, basically had to do without throughout the course of this war and they, they came out on top. So, yeah, fair, fair enough. But I think that if that's the what it, you know, if that's a conclusion you come away with as an author, I think it's kind of a thing, a, a case of maybe restructuring the book because um, in that case, then there perhaps needs to be a different focus than talking about you know practical implications of the food supply situation. And I think um, I would liken that more to, especially say, the Ring of Steel. Um, where the concern, especially for policy makers, is not so much the direct impacts um, of the food supply situation rather than the perceived impact of the food supply situation. And, and to, to be fair, she does pick this up in relation to, say, Germany and the British Empire, when that is, where that is very much the case of, uh, at least for their uh, national populations, um, it's very much more a case of inconvenience or sort of going without um, or going sort of without maintaining their quality of life wherever than, rather than anything more substantive. Uh, but yeah, I suppose that the point is, is that if you went through all this material and that was your conclusion, then perhaps would focus on these other elements. Um, but that would be my opinion. There you go. What would you think? Yeah, it's a really, really good point. And I agree with that. I think, you know, if you, I, there was, um, well, reading the introduction, I, I kind of felt a twinge of frustration when we started the book because um, she was mentioning, you know, her, her research and, and her emphasis on food and, and then kind of placing it quite centrally to uh, her understanding of the, the, the second world war and it, it kind of felt to me like you know, there's a, a little bit of a movement in academic history to kind of specialize in 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 something and then to kind of find the um after you've specialized in it to find the the, the kind of relevance to um historical discussion and i i, I felt that maybe there was a, a little bit of an element of that in in the book um having said that once i actually got into it i really really enjoyed it and i, I think it was like it's definitely felt like the broadest book that we've read in terms of it covering all of the belligerents in the in the second world war 
and who and and covering the entire period of the the second world war and in, indeed the pre-war period and the post-war period as well um and i i quite i found that really fresh really refreshing um because we've we've read quite a few books that have focused on on quite specific topics or areas it was quite nice to get a, a broader picture and really something that was uh, a topic area that i have very little knowledge of um yeah but i i do agree i think that you know that if your conclusion is that food didn't really um affect the outcome of the war in the end then maybe the essential thesis of the book should have, have been different um and also because you're you're right here like it, it does feel a bit i mean you can flat this up a little bit but the structure does make it feel a, a, a quite repetitive and that she sort of goes in sequence multiple times through all the make patterns um, and also that there's kind of like this issue with the, with the scope being quite broad because, um, as you just said, like it kind of covers the period immediately before. I mean, fair enough, because, you know, you'd probably want to cover that period just to set the the stage for the, the rest of the book. But it does go on a bit beyond that, especially in relation to uh, the US, because it, she goes kind of goes into like the, the, the post-war period in, in terms of how that sort of sets the stage for um you know um uh, the, the sort of global domination by the, the us in particular um and some of the implications but the, like some of the segues are a bit weird because she goes into some detail about like the pacific islanders and how they were impacted by the american war effort and yeah i mean fair enough but like come on you can also <laughs> focus down a little bit more as well building on that that point they made about the the um repetitiveness of, of it because of, of some of the, the chapters kind of revisiting uh the same theaters or the same belligerent nations each time i mean i i certainly found it quite difficult to read uh meat milk fats cereals and oils as many times as she wrote them it was it was quite painful towards the end of the book um it, yeah it would like i would have buried the language a little bit and to a certain extent, I guess that's, you know, what I was saying earlier about the the kind of a bit of frustration at, at, at academia or academic history, kind of finding a, a subject and then kind of um, trying to make it the focus of, of your study. I would have preferred there to be maybe at the risk of the um at the risk of the the topic being a little bit less thorough i would have preferred a kind of more varied writing style basically it just it it became quite difficult after 500 pages to to read such similar um words again and again <laughs> fair enough but i i think well if anything i i did appreciate the uh the thematic nature of the book, um, at least to contrast to the last book we read, which um, was a bit of a dud. Oh yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I, I really enjoyed this one. I, I, I feel like, you know, I, I have to kind of reach for things to find fault with in this in this book. I really would recommend it to 
to anyone um because I, I it's such a it's it yeah it's such an interesting topic and, and she does kind of make it really really interesting as well um and the theming of it was you know a, a crucial point part of that i just wish that there was maybe a little bit more variety in the language well maybe it was a like a um deliberate tribute to the the bland and repetitive mills um they had to face on the home front but perhaps maybe, maybe it was too much into it maybe it was i mean it, it might yeah it might have been been driven by that, that idea but it did it did definitely come across you know just substitute like cereals for grain every so often or you know <laughs> um, i don't think i've been this harsh about something i've liked for a while so <laughs> there you go um so um seems like a good point to say what we're going to be reading next so next up is my choice which is uh, the vanquished uh why the first world war failed to end 1917 to 1923. This is uh, a book by Robert Gorath. Um, apologize for mispronouncing his name. Um, but it's published by Penguin History. And um, I've actually already read it. Um, so looking forward to, to reviewing it. But um, yeah, that's, that's next episode. So please stay tuned. Yeah, I haven't actually finished it. So I need to get on that. Um, but yeah, but like I'm about halfway through um, liking it so far. So thanks for listening and um, see you in the next one. Well, not literally, but hopefully you can catch the next one. There you go. Boy.